I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We continue on in our study of this letter that Paul wrote. We're looking today at Ephesians chapter 4 in verses 17 through 24. It's on page 978 in the red Bibles around you. I would encourage you to listen as I read to you from Paul's letter. As he writes these words to the Christian folks that are in Ephesus and around Ephesus. Verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray together. Our great God and King, our Father, we pray that you would show us wonderful things from this portion of your word. Open our hearts and our minds to see it, to believe it, and to trust you in greater ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite things to do while I'm traveling, which I was doing just not too long ago, is to get to the airport early and to find a good seat in a busy terminal and watch people walk by. You can learn a lot about what people are like just by watching them walk by. You can see those that are in a hurry perhaps are stressed out because of the day of travel that they're experiencing. You can see those who traveling is no big deal and they just take it in stride. You can see those who are having a bad day, perhaps. Those who are downcast. You can see those who are perhaps going to see a loved one that they haven't seen for a long time and so they're walking with quite a joyous step. You can see all of these various things in people if you just watch how they walk. Now, granted, it's only a small, short snapshot of their lives, and certainly it's not always accurate, but it is interesting. And I will tell you, I'll even do that occasionally on Sunday mornings. My office window looks right out on that front walk. And there are days when I'll sit there behind my desk and I'll watch you walk in. Knowing what I know about many of you and things that are going in your lives, I can see those things as I watch you walk in or perhaps even watching you from the front. There's something about watching people who walk. There's something about our walk that reveals a lot about who we are and what's going on in our life. And Paul picks up on that idea in Ephesians throughout the entire letter. This idea of walking is a key idea in this letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. It's particularly Pertinent as it comes up in the last three chapters, 4, 5, and 6. But even in chapter 2, he mentioned uh, in verse 1, as he was speaking to the Ephesians about what they used to be like, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
Earlier in chapter 4 and verse 1, he said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And in chapter 5, three times he's going to talk about walking. He'll say, he'll talk about walking in love, walking as children of light, and looking carefully about how we walk. And then our passage for us this morning in verse 17. This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul is obviously speaking about a spiritual walk. How we live in the world in light of who we are as God's people. Paul's writing this letter to Christians in and around the city of Ephesus in the first century. And as we've been talking about over these last months, he begins his letter by by hammering home what is true about who God is and who they are in Christ. First three chapters are over and over again about what is true. And as he moves into chapter 4 and in the last three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, he begins to say, now that you know what is true about you, Here is what you're to do as a result. Your theology is meant to lead you to practical living it out. There's supposed to be a connection between what we say we believe and how we live. That our walk should line up with what we believe. This last half of chapter 4, Paul is telling the Ephesian Christians to not live like they used to live. And now to live like who they are now. We're going to see that today in verses 17 through 24 in a general way. And then in two weeks we're going to come back and look at more specifics that he gives them in verses 25 through 32. But today I want us to see three things from the passage. First, what Paul says about how they are not to live like they used to live. And then secondly, the call for them to live like who they are now. And then thirdly, how they can do it. So first of all, what does Paul tell them about not living like they used to be? You can see that in verses 17 through 19. Now before we jump in and start to unpack these verses and see what Paul says about the unbelieving Gentiles. He's describing what unbelievers are like. I want to say just two quick things to you. First of all, as God's people, as Christians, it is often easy to hear Paul talk about unbelievers and to get cocky and arrogant. Those people out there. Look at how bad they are. But just a reminder that he gave to the Ephesians as well. In chapter 2, he said, this is what you were like. You were one of them before I worked in your life. And that's true for every single one of us as believers in Christ this morning. We have no reason to be cocky or arrogant, but simply humble and thankful for God's work in our lives. And secondly, just a reminder that Paul is describing unbelievers here, but there are certainly degrees of these negative qualities that he's going to mention. No one is as possibly bad as they possibly could be all the time. But what does Paul say here about these unbelievers in verses 17 through 19? Well, he begins at the end of verse 17 to talk about these unbelieving Gentiles and the futility of their minds. That word futility is the word that means empty, vanity, meaninglessness, nothingness, purposelessness. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's actually the word that shows up over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes for vanity. What he's saying here is that a life apart from God, 
A life apart from knowing and believing and trusting God is a life of emptiness. It's a life that's without true and right meaning and purpose. It's not just the futility of their minds. Notice he says at the beginning of verse 18, they are also darkened in their understanding. The word darkened there means a lack of perception about morals and religion. That they are blinded. That they can't see the truth. They are darkened in their understanding. It's a word that means the very seat, the core of who they are, their affections, their perceptions. And what he's saying here is that they have this wrong thinking that when they view the world, they can't see the ultimate truth about who God is and what he has done. They are blinded. They are darkened. But it's not just their thinking. It's also their living that Paul takes issue with. He says at the end of verse 18, they are alienated from the life of God. Earlier in chapter 2, he had talked about how before the Ephesian Christians had had God working in their lives, they were dead in their sins and trespasses. And what he's saying here by being alienated from God, from the life of God, is that they are still dead in their trespasses and sins. They are separated from God. They are not in a relationship with them, with him. And notice he says that they're still culpable for that because it's as a result of the ignorance that is in them. And the word that Paul uses there for ignorance is a willful, stubborn disobedience. They are alienated. They are separated from the life of God. He goes on to describe this wrong living in verse 19, that they have given themselves up to sensuality. There is no moral restraint. They willfully give themselves up to what he says is sensuality. It's a word that is usually referred to, usually is used to refer to indecent and outrageous and unbiblical sexual license. This is lustful indulgence that he's speaking about here. And even more at the end of verse 19, he says they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Driven by an insatiable pursuit of impurity, of immorality. Unrestrained, unbiblical sexual behavior. It's actually very similar to something Paul wrote in another letter to another church. About a year and a half ago, we were working our way through Romans. And at the beginning of Romans, Paul says these words about the Christians and the unbelievers in Rome. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fool. Fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
It's scary. It's a dangerous place to be. That we would be given up, given over. That we would be allowed by God. That His protection around us would be given away. And that we would be given in, we would willfully give in and give ourselves over to these things. It's not just wrong thinking and wrong living that Paul addresses here, but it's simply wrong being as well. Notice what he says at the end of verse 18 and the beginning of verse 19. He speaks about how they have a hardness of heart. The heart is that core of our being. It is the essence of who we are. And he says there is a hardness to the heart of the unbeliever. It's a unique word that he uses here. uses only here. It literally means to petrify. Occasionally it was used in medical contexts and it would be used to refer to the callousing or the hardening or the thickening of the skin. And Paul's using this word figuratively to say that the hearts of unbelievers are hardened to God and the truth that there is a stubborn and obstinate rejection of God and His word. As he goes on to say in verse 19, they have become callous. The word there means to lose capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. Some of you have learned how to play the guitar or other stringed instruments. And you know about that process that happens when you first start learning to play. And your fingers are pressing against those hard strings. It's painful for a while. Eventually, your fingertips will begin to develop calluses. The skin will harden. And then there's no more pain. There's no more, no, no more even acknowledgement that there was pain because it's, it's calloused, it's hardened over. And that's the, the picture of what Paul is giving here of unbelievers' heart is that they are calloused, that there's no longer an ability to feel shame or embarrassment. He's speaking about their very being, their motivational structure, the affections of their hearts are hardened and calloused toward God. This is, this is how Paul is describing what these Christians in Ephesus used to be like before the Holy Spirit came in and changed their lives. It's what all of us were like before God comes in and changes us. And Paul's point here is that's not what we're like anymore. He says, no longer must we walk as the unbelievers do. Now we are called to do what? Walk as who we are. Notice what he says in verses 22 and verse 24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. In verse 24, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness in holiness. Paul says, don't walk any longer like you used to be. Now, live like who you are. Put off that old self and put on the new self. The, the verbs that Paul's using here about putting off and putting on, very common in the ancient culture. They referred to taking off and putting on, taking off dirty clothes and putting on new clothes. Very common figure of speech in ancient culture. But Paul's doing something very unique with it here. He's not talking about us putting off and putting on clothes. What does he say that we are to put off and put on? A person. No one spoke like that in the first century. Paul is doing something unique here as he speaks about putting off and putting on a person. And he did it frequently in his letters. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, If you're a Christian, then you have put on 
Christ. That's what he's getting at here as well. That if you're in Christ this morning, you have put off your old self. And you have put on something new, someone new. You have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That explains why Paul chose the kind of verbs that he did here. The verbs that he chose, he put into a very specific tense in the Greek. The tense of a verb refers to the timing of it. And the verb's tense that he uses here is called aorist tense. And it's specifically referred to a single, past, completed action. So the sense of what Paul is saying here is not only that you are to put off your old self and to put on your new, but he's talking about something that's a completed action in the past. You have already put off your old self. And you have already put on your new self. When? When you were converted. When the Holy Spirit came into your life and gave you a heart of flesh, regenerating your heart. In a definitive way, at that very moment, you were changed. You are no longer like you were in the past, and you now are new. You are different. You have put on Christ. You have put on someone new. These verbs not only have the sense of being in the past, but they also have a sense of being a command. You have been changed. You are different. Even if you don't feel like it, Paul says, and you are to live your life pursuing that. You have put off, you have put on, and now you must continue to put off your old self and continue to put on Christ every single moment of every single day. Notice Paul speaks here both negatively and positively about that. Negatively, he says, we are supposed to put off. We're supposed to take out, we're to to root out these old ways of living. Those ways that he's described about how they were like before they were believers. He says, no longer are you to stubbornly suppress the truth. You are to put off your greedy pursuit of sexual immorality and sensuality. You are to put off the deceitful desires of your old self. You are to stop the pursuit of futile, vain, purposeless things in this life while willfully and obstinately rejecting God and His Word. And he's not saying that just to the Ephesians. He's saying that to you as well this morning, if you are in Christ, you too have put off your old self and put on your new self when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must actively be doing it every single day of your lives. Can we talk a moment just about a specific example of that? It's something that... Paul references here in this text, and also he mentioned in the the Romans text that I read to you earlier. It's the idea of sexual sin. It's something that I seem to hear more and more confusion about within the culture and even within the evangelical community. I'm hearing more and more people talk about, well, this is just who I am. Whatever... Sexual sin that I'm struggling with. This is, this is, this is just how I am. This is how I'm, I'm going to be. And the Bible affirms the value and significance of every single image bearer. Every single person created by God. The Bible also affirms the significant power and pull of sexual sin. But Paul is clear and the Bible is clear about the need for God's people to root it out of our lives To put it off. It's not compatible with life as a Christian. 
Why? It's because it's not who we are anymore. It's not our ultimate identity. We have been changed. We have put on Christ. We have been united to faith by Him. But we have been united to Him by faith. And now we are in Christ. Perhaps it is a sin that we will have to lean against for the rest of our lives. But lean against it we must. Paul gives them a positive aspect of this as well. It's not just to put off these things, but it's also to put on the new self. Now, you'll notice in the passage, he doesn't give us a lot of examples of that as he does putting off the old self. We're going to get some more of that in the next section in verses 25 and following. But he does mention a couple things here at the end of verse 24. Part of what putting on the new self is, is a true righteousness and holiness, he says. Where he says a, a, a likeness of God that we become more and more Christ-like. Never perfect in this life. But as time progresses, more and more we are becoming more and more like our Heavenly Father. That's why he'll say at the beginning of, verse, uh, beginning of chapter 5 and verse 1 that we ought to be imitators of God. The end of verse 21, he talks about the pursuit of truth as it is in Jesus And then later in chapter 6, he's going to talk about the whole armor of God. That as God's people, we are to be putting on. The question is, how? My guess is that if you're a Christian here this morning, you can feel the weight of what Paul is saying here. Of putting off and putting on. Feeling the weight of, of putting off the old self. No longer living like who we used to be. And living now who like we are supposed to be. You can feel the weight of that. So where is the power? Where is the strength? Where is the motivation for us today? There are different ideas about there about how we ought to motivate people to put off and to put on. Perhaps you've experienced some of these. One is fear. You better not do those things anymore. Because if you do, God's going to get you. God's going to punish you. God's not going to bless you. Fear. Or some of you may have been motivated in the past by pride or shame. You you better shape up and start living the right way because you call yourself a Christian. And if you're going to live that way, you're going to bring shame to the name of Jesus and and His church. Or maybe you've been motivated by rules, whether biblical or man-made, in order to build fences. If you follow the rules of God, then He'll love you, He'll accept you, and He'll bless you. Listen, there are definitely rules in the Bible. There are rules, even in the passage that Paul's giving us here, Rules for us to live by and they're important, they're biblical for us to follow. But the question is, what is our ultimate motivation? The problem is that fear and pride and shame and rules have no ultimate power to bring long-term change in our lives. Short-term change perhaps, but not lasting change. Some of you have read the book Shepherding a Child's Heart by Tripp. And you know that in that book, he says the goal of raising godly children is not simply to change their behavior, but to grip and to grab their hearts with the truth of God's love and grace and mercy. If we are simply being motivated by fear or pride or shame or even rules, we'll be crushed under their weight. 
So what does Paul say is the power and the motivation and the strength that we have to put off the old self and to put on the new self? Well, he gets at it in verses 20 and 21. He says, you, you used to be like this, this, this way of living, the, the unbelieving way of living, but that's not the way you learned Christ, he said. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. You hear what he says? You used to be that way, but you learned Christ. You heard Christ. Now I know that in the ESV version here, there's the little word about in front of, or right after here, you've heard about. But there's actually no about in the Greek text here. You see what he's saying? You haven't just learned about Jesus. You haven't just heard about Jesus. You learned Jesus. You heard Jesus. It's a unique phrasing to what Paul's doing here. There's lots in the ancient culture about learning. Learning ideas and philosophies, ways of thinking. But never is it spoken of about learning a person. Paul is being unique. He says, you learned Jesus. He's talking more about than just learning about Jesus. To learn someone is to know them. It's to be in a relationship with them. And here is the ability to put off the old self and to put on the new self. It comes from being in a relationship with Jesus. Christianity is not primarily about a list of rules to follow. There are some and they are important. But that's not primarily what the Christian faith is about. First and foremost, it is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Being united to Him in faith. That's why Paul says, not only are we to put off and to put on, but in verse 23, we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, he says. You can tell, even as the English translation gets it right, that it's passive. It's something that happens to us. We are to be renewed. It's something that God does to us. God changes our whole way of thinking. He teaches us about the gospel of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are fully and completely accepted and loved by grace through faith in Jesus. And that gospel of God's grace and mercy is meant to completely change how we view Him and the world and even our own lives. Paul's point here is that our relationship with Jesus, our union with Him, His grace to us through the gospel of Jesus is what is to motivate us and empower us to put off the old ways and to put on the new way of living in righteousness and holiness. We are to stop living like who we used to be and live like who we are because we're connected and united to Christ. He renews us. He teaches us about His love and grace for us and that motivates and empowers us to put off the old self and to put on the new, to live like who we are. Some of you are, uh, the name D. James Kennedy is familiar to you. Dr. Kennedy was a PCA pastor for 47 years at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida. He's also the founder of Evangelism Explosion. He died in 2007. Uh, but uh, he often, through Evangelism Explosion and his own pastoral ministry, would tell the story about Alexander the Great. Now, as with many pastor stories, there's no doubt a mixture of truth and maybe some fiction in this story, but something that is interesting nonetheless. Alexander the Great was once sitting 
in one of Nebuchadnezzar's old palaces after a successful war campaign in the area that used to be called Babylon. And Alexander the Great was giving out punishments to people who had committed crimes during that particular battle, as he often did. And at one point, a sergeant brought in a young boy. The charges against this young boy were cowardice. He had fled in the face of battle. And that made Alexander furious. He was about to pronounce judgment on the boy when he looked up and saw how young he was. And his anger began to subside and his face even softened to some degree. And he asked the boy, what is your name? And the boy responded, Alexander. Alexander the Great was surprised and even a little put off by that. So he said again, what is your name? And the boy realized that he probably needed to respond with a little bit of respect. And so he said, my name is Alexander, sir. At that, Alexander the Great became enraged. He jumped off the throne and he went over and grabbed the boy by the shoulders. He said, what is your name? The boy again said, Alexander, sir. Alexander the Great, over the top with his anger, pushed the boy back, standing, towering over him, and said, change your conduct or change your name. You see what he was saying? No coward. No no coward, no matter how young, is going to have the same name as Alexander the Great. Now, some sermon illustrations are helpful in helping us to understand what God is like. This particular one helps us to understand what God is not like. Because our God doesn't look at us and say, what is your name? Our God looks at us with love and compassion and says, I've given you a name. It's my name. You're mine. And you are precious in my sight. King Jesus didn't come off of the throne in heaven in anger. King Jesus came off the throne in heaven and was born into this world out of love and grace for you. And now he looks at you and he says, you are mine. I have made you my very precious possession. Don't live like who you used to be anymore. Live like who you are now. Look at me and see how much I love you. And in response, live like who you are. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we recognize it's so hard for us in the midst of our day-to-day activities as we're bombarded from outside of ourselves and even from within our own hearts with so many reasons and so many temptations to go back to living like we used to be before you came and redeemed and reconciled us to yourself. Help us, empower us, strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the conclusion of our service, as we do each week, we come to the Lord's Supper. It's one of the two sacraments that God has given to His church. The first being baptism, where He 
marks an initiation into the visible church, a coming into the visible church. This sacrament, the Lord's Supper, is a mark of our continuing in the Lord's church. It's a means of grace. And by that we mean it's a way, it's, it's a means by which God communicates His grace to us. As we come, it helps us to remember this do in remembrance of me, Jesus says. We remember His body and His blood being given to reconcile us to Himself. It gives us an opportunity of reflecting on God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also believe that it's a nourishment for us spiritually. That it's a strengthening of our faith as we come and partake in faith. The Holy Spirit's at work strengthening and empowering us and encouraging us to send us out to live for Him. We believe that the Lord's Supper is for those who have learned Jesus. Not just learned about Him could say some things about who he was or what he did, but have learned him, who believe in him, who trust him, who are in a relationship with him. So if you're here this morning and that describes you and that you've made it public, you've publicly professed your faith in Christ here at Trinity or another evangelical Bible-believing church, then come and eat, drink, Be reminded and be nourished in your faith so that we might go out and truly live like who we are. Let's pause and thank him for giving us this table. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you with thankful hearts, thankful for this means of grace. We're we're thankful for your word as you give it to us that we might learn from it and be reminded of the truths of your promises that are everlasting. And we're thankful for this means of grace as well, the Lord's Supper. Feed us. As we come to you in faith, nourish us, strengthen us, help us, Father, to put off the old self and to put on the new. For your glory we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.